Well, let me introduce myself if I've not met you before. My name is Steve, and I'm one of the elders here in the church, and I'm going to be bringing Acts chapter 24 to you this morning. We've been making our way through the book of Acts over this past quite a few months, actually, and uh, we're on the downhill slide. There's only a few more chapters left, and we're going to tackle one of those chapters today, and that's chapter 24. But before I do, uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the privilege of singing worship to you. And what we've just expressed in that last song is that it is well with our soul because of all that you've done. We recognize that you are the risen, majestic God who is coming back again. And because of that, and because of the, um, just the hope in that, it gives us confidence to walk daily with you and to live for you and to proclaim your great news to the rest of the world. So thank you for that. And as we look this morning at this, give us teachableness. Give us a heart that just says, Lord, what do you want for me? What, where, where do I need to grow? What do I need to do? Just give us that kind of teachable, teachableness this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, uh, we're just around the corner from the, uh, the, the football season that's coming up, and Nebraska's going to be playing in 20 days, two hours, and a few minutes from about right now, about 30 minutes. I was looking on my, I've got a phone app on my phone, and it uh, tells, it, there's a countdown thing there, and uh, I always look forward to it, and people, you know, I always wonder, how can, you know, how can you be so optimistic? And it's kind of funny, as I talk to people around this time of the year, there always is a, there's kind of this optimism, this hope that, boy, Nebraska can do good again this year. And, uh, and it's no different than it was last year at this time and the same, same this year. And, and uh, you know, we can always hope that uh, Nebraska does good and maybe the Lord will come back and mercifully uh, uh, spare us from another football season. Don't know if that's going to happen, but it would sure be nice. But uh, as we uh, talk about hope, and I, I always think of it this way, there, there always is hope for, for a miracle. And uh, let me give you just one example. Back in uh, 2013, I think it was November 3rd, 2013, during the Bo Pelini era, there was a uh, game that Nebraska played at home against Northwestern. And if you follow Nebraska at this, you know, you would probably remember this particular game. It was Nebraska down by three points, five seconds left, 49 yards to go for any kind of a score. They're down to the third string quarterback, Ron Kellogg the third, and he threw a pass. Time expired as this ball is flying through the air. It's flying down towards the end zone. The ball is tipped up in the air, and a guy standing back there named Jordan Westerkamp right behind all the other people, and he catches the ball on a Hail Mary pass Nebraska scores, touchdown, Nebraska wins the game. See, there's always hope. But uh, touchdowns uh, don't come like that very often for us. But we're going to talk about a different kind of hope this morning in Acts chapter 24. It's Paul's conviction of hope that is eternally significant, the hope of the resurrection. And we're going to take a look at... Uh, just the uh, just let me give you first of all just a little bit of context of where where we've come from and uh, what's been happening. 
But Paul has just, uh, had just arrived 12 days before this Acts chapter 24 passage that we're looking at. 12 days before, he'd arrived in Jerusalem, and he was in a hornet's nest. Literally, the people there, there were some Asians, uh, Asian Jews there, and they had it out for Paul. They had seen Paul walking around the city with a, a Gentile named, uh, I think it was Theophilus, and he, they believed that he had brought him, and they had, they had suspected that he had brought him in, into the temple, and they had a riot. There was just all kinds of things going on there. And a, there was a plot, if you remember from last week, of 40 men who took an oath that they would neither eat or drink until Paul was assassinated. And that plot got uh, found out by, of all people, one of the nephews of Paul. He'd heard about it. He went to the Roman officials. They took care of it, and they basically swept Paul away with 470 soldiers off 60 miles away to Caesarea before that plot could be fulfilled because they knew that Paul was a Roman citizen and they were protecting him. Chapter 24, there's going to be three main sections in this particular chapter here. The prosecution of the trial, the defense of the trial, and then the verdict of this particular trial. And the prosecution started with Ananias. Well, I, I'm going to read the passage first. forgot about that. So we need to read the passage. We're going to look at chapter 24 here uh, just and read this. And I'd like you to stand as we actually uh, read this particular cha chapter here. It says this, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They lay before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg, I beg you and your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that, that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. But I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I also take pains to have a clear conscience towards both man and God. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. 
But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make, this, to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while I was standing among them. It is, respect, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having, rather, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. Some, after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and, had, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go, from, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would, would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. After two years, time, uh, after two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by uh, Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You may be seated. So the prosecution begins with the high priest, a slick lawyer called Tertullus, and a bunch of elders that came down. And it had to been, it had to been pretty significant for the high priest to make this, uh, this journey, 60 miles to go over there to Caesarea and to do this, uh, to take on this lawsuit that they were bringing against Paul. And this wasn't, you know, this wasn't just a, just a, a frivolous lawsuit. They had what they thought was some serious charges against Paul. Remember, they were furious about the fact that Paul had been swept away and he was now out of their presence because that assassination plot did not take place. I'm sure that there was a bunch of hungry and thirsty guys <laughs> running around there still in Jerusalem wondering, man, what's, you know, what are we going to do? Do we follow through on this thing? But they'd gone down. Uh, they had one objective and that was the death of Paul. And now the Roman court system was going to have to, to take care of this. And so they had to make a, a case against Paul. Tertullus, I can't hardly say that word, Tertullus begins his prosecution with some flattery. If you notice, he makes these, these, um, these great kind of things. He says, we enjoy much peace to you, you know, Philip, because you've had great foresight, you've done all these wonderful things. And the thing that it was flattery because the Jews hated Felix. Felix was, was not a nice guy. He was a weak leader. He was indecisive. He had a knife-welding assassination team that would take care of people kind of off to the side. In fact, one of the high priests was actually killed by his assassination team, a, a high priest named Jonathan. He had put down riots with a heavy hand. He was just, he was just constantly uh, doing excessive killing of people whenever there was uprisings and so forth. He stole another man's wife, and that's the wife Drusilla, as, you see, as we see in this particular passage. He was also 
uh, materialistic. He was always looking for bribes and those kind of things. So he was, it's not an exaggeration to say that Tertullus was giving this, this very you know, thick flattery, this excessive praise to him to try to butter him up in a sense. But there are three violations that they're going to bring up in here that Tertullus is going to, to, to mention. And the first one is an, the accusation of Roman law. He says in verse 5, the first part, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. The accusation here was that Paul was a troublemaker. He was one who was a disruptor. And you think, well, what's, what's wrong? I mean, that's not that worthy of death. And yet, when you understand that the Romans did most, just about anything to maintain peace within all of their, their land that they occupied, they would get rid of uh, somebody who was a disruptor in a, in a heartbeat, somebody who stirred up the crowds. And so, and it's kind of interesting, Paul, you think, well, yeah, well, Paul was kind of that. Well, he was, he was, in truth, he was there for a lot of the riots, but he wasn't the one who caused the riots. It was the Jews who stirred up people and got them so, so angry that these riots would happen. In fact, if you remember just back a couple chapters, they almost tore Paul apart in several situations and almost, they, they had intended to kill him in those things. So that was the first, the first violation. The second accusation is the violation of Jewish law. In the second half of the, the passage there in verse 5, it says that he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, a sect is an offshoot of a larger group that is oftentimes seen as heretical or, and dangerous. And the Nazarenes, where they use that term, the Nazarenes, they were seen as the lowlife. And if you remember way back in uh, the book of John, when I think it was, um, I think it was Nathaniel, he said that when, when Philip introduced him, he says, here is Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that statement? Well, Nazareth did not have a good reputation. It was a bunch of kind of, of low-life people that were rebel rousers a lot of times from that particular part. Historians tell us that, that, um, that there was, a, during this time period, that there was a number of false messianic startups that, were in the, that had been a part of the, the uh, that were going on in this particular time period. And they saw Paul as another ringleader uh, and they were trying to present him as another ringleader, another offshoot of Judaism. A lot of what they also said in the, is historically that some of these false messianic startups were gathering large groups of people, followings, and, and causing much disruption amongst the colonies there of the, the, Roman, the Roman lands there. So they had to, con they had to convince Felix, the, the governor, they had to convince him that Paul was another one of these these startups, a sect of the Nazarenes, and they had to convince the, you know, Felix that he was dangerous to the whole thing. So that was the second uh, violation. The third accusation, and the violation was against God. It says in verse 6 that he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And the temple was known, well, obviously the temple was sacred. It was holy. It was God's dwelling place. And Felix was, had been around enough to know the Jewish religion, and he knew that there were, 
that if that were to happen, these passionate Jews would definitely revolt against, against the nation, against the things, and there would be great unrest taking place. If you remember back, it was back in the, uh, I mentioned it earlier, back in chapter 21 of Acts, that Paul had been seen by some Asian Jews in the city of Jerusalem in, the, in those days, those first seven days that he was there. And they had seen him with a guy that they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. But Luke makes this, makes this comment in chapter 21, verse 29. He says, they had seen Paul with Trophimus, that's his name, in the city, supposed, and they supposed that Paul brought him into the temple. They never saw him bring him into the temple, but they just assumed that he did. And because of that, they were making this accusation against Paul that he was... Uh, that he had profaned the temple. The, the Jews here, or this, this lawyer and the, uh, the high priest and these Jews that had come down to, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, in a sense, were hoping for a Hail Mary, that they could pull this off. And yet it was very general and vague kind of, uh, of accusations that they had. This was what I would call kind of a kangaroo court in the sense, seeking the death of somebody who was falsely accused. And the principle here, there's a principle I think that we need to consider that I think is true wherever you go, and that is that the godly, those who live godly lives should expect resistance and adversity, that the world is going to hate you when you initiate Jesus and his teachings. You're going to experience adversity when you live a life that's pleasing to God. I was looking up, I was just thinking about this whole thing, and I was looking up uh, Christian pastors and, uh, and so forth, specifically in the country of Iran, and just seeing what's happened in the last few years. And it was interesting to me to see about 10 or 15 different articles on the internet of pastors who had been imprisoned and executed in Iran in the last 10 years because they would not give up their faith in Christ. They may have come to, come to Christ at, at some point, maybe they were Muslim, and then ended up uh, being executed because of their faith. And you might be thinking, oh well, yeah, but that's, that's over there, that's, that's in the Middle East, we, we would expect that kind of thing. So. But I was also looking up uh, as another thing on the Doors USA, Open Doors USA, and it said just between 19, or 2020 and 2021, there were 4,700 confirmed executions of believers around the world. And they figured, they also made this comment, there could be tens of thousands more because countries like North Korea, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, some of those different places, you can't even get statistics of what's going on there. There's probably... So thousands and thousands of believers who are persecuted for their faith. And again, you might be thinking, hey, that's, that's not here in the U.S. Why, why do we think about it? Should even be thinking about it. Well, let me tell you what just happened next door to us in the last year, couple of years here. In uh, 2021, there was a Canadian pastor by the uh, name of Pastor Poloski. He was arrested on Easter Sunday, and I don't know if any of you saw this. It was on Fox News and a couple different things. He was arrested in his church for conducting an Easter service. They made a big scene out of it. They came in with all this law enforcement and, you know, and pulled this guy out of there. 
And the reason was is that he disobeyed COVID restrictions and felt that it was more important to worship Christ in a public in a and with believers on that Easter Sunday. He's pulled out of there, charged. Four other times he was charged for different things and had to pay fines. But he was also arrested just this spring, or actually it was just this winter, I think it was in January, for holding a church service with truck drivers that were on strike in Canada. And for the, because, not because of COVID, but because of his message that he was preaching that Sunday. They threw him in jail for 51 days, and, um, and during that time, Pulaski recounted being caged in, in, a, in a small metal cage for a time. He, had to, he was forced to sleep on a concrete floor. Fellow inmates told him in this Canadian prison that the guards had offered them bribes to beat him up. He had a Bible study that started during this, this time. 20 guys in a Bible study led several of them to Christ, and it was such a threat to them that they pulled him out of that prison and put him in a psychiatric ward in another prison with a guy who was his roommate, a great guy, who was a paranoid schizophrenic who had just murdered his brother with a hatchet, and that was his roommate. They would oftentimes leave the cell door open, and uh, he, would, he would constantly under threat of his life. And you might be thinking, well, you know, well, that's, that's Canada. Well, if you haven't noticed, it's moving to the United States. It's coming here. The adversity for those who live a life that is pleasing to God and for those who proclaim God's word, adversity and resistance is a real thing. It's, it's a principle that's going to be, be true. Matthew chapter, seven, chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, and then 21 and 22 says this. Jesus is speaking. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brothers will, de brothers will deliver brother over to death and fathers his children. And the children will rise up against the parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Those are the sobering realities and Paul saw that firsthand and those are the sobering realities of what believers are already experiencing around the world so in one of the things that you might say was how does how does Paul keep going in this he's he's just been blamed for this and and I think the perspective that we find in Philippians chapter 3 particularly in verse 10 where Paul says that he counts everything a loss or worthless. All the things that he has, everything, you know, all the things that he's going through, it's worthless compared to knowing Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection. That's the perspective that Paul was writing to the Philippians, and that's the perspective he has as he's standing there, and now he gives his defense. Let's take a look at his defense. Paul didn't have any fancy lawyer, but he did have an advantage. He had the Holy Spirit that was speaking through him. And so he, he had the ultimate advantage. But he give, begins his defense with this in verse 10. He says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He's basically telling Felix that you've been here long enough and you know the Jewish customs and the things that are going on. And therefore, I'm glad to be, bring my defense against you. He's not angry. 
He's not, boy, I'm a victim kind of, a, I'm, in a, and I'm, I'm victimized here, that kind of thing. He's not doing that, but he's cheerfully doing it. And he begins his defense uh, of these accusations with the first one, the defense of the violation against Roman law. He says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, you can verify that it has not been more than 12 days since I went down to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. He's saying here, I've only been back to, to Jerusalem in this part of the world for 12 days. Seven of those days I was in Jerusalem, and five days I've been with you in, in jail. There's no way I could have organized some sort of revolt against you. And there's, I've only been back just a short time. They can't prove any of this. The defense against the violation of the Jewish law. In verses 14 and 15, he says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The way that he's talking about there, the sect, if you remember Jesus in John chapter 14, when Thomas asked him, how do we get to heaven? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what the, the Christians called themselves in this first century church. They called themselves the way, or they were the followers of the way. That's Jesus. And Paul says, this is not a sect at all. He says, I believe all that is written in the law and the prophets. Moses believed in Christ. How about you guys? Moses believed in the resurrection. How about you guys? Paul is pointing out that if you deny Jesus as the Messiah, then you are denying the entire Old Testament spoke of Christ, spoken of Christ. What kind of a Jew are you guys anyway? That's kind of what, he, what he's getting at here. He's poking at him a little bit. You don't believe in Christ? Then you don't believe in the whole Old Testament. John, or Jesus tells us back in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, he's speaking to Pharisees here. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The whole Old Testament is basically a story of Jesus and who he is and who he will be when he comes physically on earth. So Paul's conviction there is uh, about who the way is, is, is evident. He believes exactly what they do, but he's a follower of Jesus because the Old Testament is a follower of Jesus. It wrote about him. Paul also states the conviction that has changed his life. The hope in God that there will be a resurrection. That there will be a resurrection. This is a conviction. He was confident that, Je that because Jesus rose from the dead, he too is going to rise from the dead. Hope here is, is a word that's kind of really interesting. It's, it's a hope that is a confident expectation is how it says, is what the Greek says. Versus the world's definition of hope. If you go to the Webster Dictionary, hope is a feeling of, of expectation or a desire for a certain thing to happen. It's, it's, um, the world's hope is more of like what I would call a wish or a dream. 
Like, for instance, to give you an example, I hope it really rain. You know, I hope it would rain. You know, that, that, that's kind of like, I wish it would really rain. Or I wish Nebraska would go 12-0 and 0 and become national championships. Now, there's a pipe dream. <laughs> but that's the kind of hope that the world has. It's more of a wish or it's not totally confident. Like the Greek is putting here is Paul's hope is that there is not just a chance, but it is a sure thing that the resurrection has, has taken place. I think back on some of the, the funerals that I have been to in my life of loved ones or friends. And for those who've had a relationship with Jesus and have walked joyfully with him, there is a totally different atmosphere. And I think you probably would agree with that if you've gone to a funeral where somebody has died and knows Christ. And sure, we're sad, but, and we're going to miss them. But at the same time, there's just such joy and optimism in a funeral like that because of one thing, the confidence and the certainty of the resurrection. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, str- your sting? Contact trasts that with a funeral with somebody who has never bent a knee to, the save, to Jesus as Savior and Lord. They might talk about their accomplishments. They might talk about the, you know, the great things that they've done as temporal as they were and as temporal as they, you know, they didn't last, they won't last long. He was a good person, you know, but the, the atmosphere is, is totally different in a funeral where somebody that did not know Christ, it all comes down to the resurrection. It's either going to live a Christless eternity because you never put your faith in Christ or because of the resurrection and your faith that you put in Christ, you're going to have an eternity spent with him because sin and death are defeated. Let me go to the last violation that Paul makes a, a defense on. And that's the violation of God. In verses 16 through 18, um, the, uh, Paul tells that he had come, come down to present alms to the poor. He had been purified. He went through a, a seven-day purification. He said that there was no crowd there. There was no disorder. The only reason that he says that he was there is in verse 21. It is respect, with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial to, for, before you this, these days. So that Paul was saying that it really isn't about these three violations that these, these guys came up with, but it is because of the resurrection that he is actually here, the hope of the resurrection. The last point is the verdict in verses 22 through 27. Now, one of the things that I've noticed over the la- a number of years in, in my life is the, the, the fascination that people have with courtroom trials and the, the suspense and the drama that plays out, especially when the verdict is read. I was looking up on the internet and it was telling that there have been over 50 that, that I saw, I didn't recognize even half of them, 50 TV dramas on courtroom uh, type, type dramas that are on, on television. Way back, and if this would date you if you remember Perry Mason. Anybody? I see a few smiles because that was 1957 through 1966. I remember Perry Mason. That tells you a little bit about my age. But um, in 1994, there was live suspense and drama that had come to the living rooms of people. 
and 150 million people watched the verdict come down of O.J. Simpson and the murder trial that was there. It was a not guilty uh, sentence. 150 million people, I was thinking, man, not very many people were working that day. <laughs> but there was, there was one more recently that captured the attention of, of our nation, and that was Kyle Rittenhouse in November of last year. They said over 139 million people watched on TikTok video alone, not counting all the rest of the platforms, the, the platforms they watched the, the trial and particularly the verdict when it came down. 139 on one platform tells you that the nation is really interested in what goes on in trials. And this particular verdict, it was what I would call probably anticlimactic a little bit. Felix was under great pressure from the Jews. And, and yet he knew that they had lied. He knew that he had a Roman citizen and the Romans took seriously taking care of their, of their, Romans, of their citizens. They, they really wanted those citizens to be protected. And so he was under that pressure plus a bunch of angry Jews. So for job security, what did he do? basically nothing. Felix lived up to his reputation as a leader who couldn't make up his mind, and he basically kicked the, the proverbial can down the road when he said, when Lysias comes, I will declare your case. There is no historical evidence that Lysias ever came down to Caesarea during that time. And I, I would think knowing, um, knowing Felix's his character, he probably just did this as a stall tactic more than anything. So it says here, a little bit later on here, in, in verses 24 and 25, it says that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and, her, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He came down with his wife. This is the wife that he had stolen from somebody. He lusted after her and stolen her from uh, somebody. And you might be thinking, wow, you know, Felix, there's hope for Felix. He was willing to listen to Paul. And Paul talks about faith in Jesus. And I was thinking about this. What might have been going through Felix's mind was probably he had seen that this trial that he had just presided over was an argument over rituals, Jewish rituals, customs, and those kind of things. And yet Paul describes it very well. It's faith in Jesus. The living Jesus is what this is really about. And so it was, it was not about these religious practices. And he talks about three things in spe specifically, three topics. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment of both the living and the, and the dead. And the, the living, and, or excuse me, the righteous and the wicked. He says there that none of, in, as far as the righteousness, none of us have righteousness before a holy God. All of us are sinful. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our acts are as filthy rags. The self-control part, I'm sure that he probably talked about self-control. And I would speculate that Paul was pointing out in Felix's life that he hadn't had very much self-control in his life. And God expects that you know, with, with lust and with murdering the high priest and taking bribes and all those kind of things. Self-control was not one of those characteristics. And so 
Felix couldn't walk away from here saying, hey, I'm a great guy, you know, I feel really good about myself. Felix needed to know that he was a sinner. And then the coming judgment, and that is considering that the wages of sin are death and God is going to separate those who don't know him and people will live an eternity in a Christless, uh, in Christless existence because of their separation from God when judgment comes. God's verdict uh, here is for those who do not place their faith in, in Christ for the payment of their sins. Now, Felix was alarmed. It says there in, in the ESV. In the NIV, it says he trembled. He was like, man, this, this isn't good when he heard about this. And it was almost a panic that was going on. It was like, getting, like he was overwhelmed with this news. And he said, you know, Go away. He says, go away from, from me from the present. You know, I'll, get, I'll come back to you if I get an opportunity. Or he's basically saying, if it's convenient, I will come back to you. So here was the, the verdict that, that, um, that Felix was making here. He was basically saying, you know what? I'm just going to put this off. Just like I put you off and put you back in prison and didn't make a decision, I'm not going to make a decision on this particular thing. You would hope that, that maybe he saw just a glimmer of hope that this conviction would have caused him to say, wow, I need Christ. But there's never any historical evidence of Felix placing his faith in, in Christ. So in verse 26, it says that, they often, that Felix and Paul often met, and yet, uh, there, was, and yet there was never, never really anything that, that happened for Felix. He never really came to Christ. He also said there, you kind of see where his heart was when he says that he hoped that Paul would give him a bribe or a favor, that he would give him money. And that would, you know, so you kind of see where, where Felix's hope lies. It lies in materialism, where Paul's hope lies in something much more sure as the resurrection of Christ. So one of the things that I was thinking about this is there, there really is a warning. And if you're here today in this situation, playing around with the gospel and procrastinating on making a decision for Christ, there's a warning here. And that is putting off a decision over and over again with convenience excuses, I would call them. That's kind of what, what Felix was doing. It is like building up layers of calluses on your heart, and it gets harder and harder to, to know uh, and to, to, to be sensitized to the Holy Spirit when you do that. When I was in college, I was um, in a fraternity, and one of the things that the fraternity had us do is they, they had you, when you were a pledge, you had to go through this, this class and you had to memorize different things about the house and so forth. And one of the things you had to do is you had to memorize the Greek alphabet. If anybody knows the Greek alphabet, it's alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, and so forth. And you had to, one of the things that they had you do is strike a match, hold the match upside down, and say it as fast as you could obviously with burning your fingers. <laughs> because a lot of guys, if they didn't have it, you're going to burn your, burn your fingers really bad. Well, I had an advantage. I'd played guitar for years and years and years. And this left hand was, had calluses build up so thick. That, and these guys didn't know that. And, 
And I would start out, I would go alpha, beta, gamma, delta, zeta, you know, so forth. I'd say the Greek alphabet. And they were just like, they couldn't believe it. I was burning my fingers, but I didn't feel anything because the calluses had gotten so thick. Well, that's the kind of calluses that build up around our heart when we procrastinate, making that decision to put our faith in Christ to put our, as a Savior. We are becoming, basically, we desensitize ourselves from the urgency of the need for Christ. Let me give you a couple applications as we end here. It's been said many times throughout the book of Acts, and, um, and I'm going to say it again, that when we initiate the gospel with an unbelieving world and live a godly life, we should expect resistance, persecution, adversity. If you haven't noticed, our country, is, the heat is being turned up on believers. So here's my question. How are you reacting? Are you cowering in a corner and just thinking, if I just live a good life, then maybe people around me will know? Well, God wants us to live a life that's godly, certainly. But how about opening our mouth? Do we open our mouths when, even though we're going to have resistance, do we tell people what it means to have a relationship with God? Earlier in Acts, we saw this particular passage, Acts 5.27, where Peter and John and some of the other apostles were given strict orders by the Sanhedrin never to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And this was the reaction. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. They recognized the, re the significance of the resurrection. Do you and I recognize the significance of the resurrection when we communicate the gospel and, and expect, do we, are we expecting resistance? Are we going to keep going when we, when we meet that resistance? Here's the second application. The hope in the resurrections brings about various responses. I want to share just a couple responses. And you, which one do you identify with? The first one is, some are like the Sadducees in, in disbelief. There's no way the resurrection could have happened. There's no way. That's just not physically possible. You know, somebody could come alive from the dead. Here's what my, my suggestion or my encouragement to you is. Consider the evidence of the resurrection. Go pick up a, a book like Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He's a lawyer that was trying to disprove Christianity in the process became a, a Christian. And his, his writing and, and his research on the resurrection is just phenomenal. Consider the, the, the changed lives of not just Paul, but the disciples that confidently went before their executioners still hanging on to the resurrection. Here's the second type of person. It's one that might be yawning here this morning and thinking, you know, I've been in life all my, in church all my life, and I've heard all this before, and familiarity has dulled your senses. This is significant. The resurrection of Christ is something that has, has, has changed the world. It might, if that's true, hopefully it's not, but if, if it were true, I would encourage you to wake up from your, your spiritual nap and think deeply about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. Third, if you have a relationship with God and your hope is in the resurrection of Christ, allow it to propel you to open your mouth and initiate the gospel with those around you. 
Just like the, the, if we've been looking at the entire book of Acts, these people, this first church, they opened their mouths. They talked about Jesus wherever they went. You might experience adversity, but who cares? The resurrection is so much more significant than the things that the world has to offer. And finally, this is for the kids. Here's your application. When you go either driving home today or when you're at home this, this afternoon, I want you to ask your parent, one of your parents, maybe both of them, ask them, how is the, why is the resurrection important to them? Why is, ask your mom and dad, why is the resurrection important to them? That's your application. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning and the hope of the gospel. As Paul was on trial for the resurrection, I pray that we would have, and the confidence that he showed in the resurrection and the hope that he had, I pray that that would be true in our lives. And if there's someone here today, Father, that has been procrastinating, putting it off, I pray that they would not wait any longer, not allow those calluses to build up around their heart, and that they would understand that they need Christ because of the sin that indwells them. Pray that they would put their faith in Jesus, knowing that there is certainty in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life for believers who, who put their faith in him. So thank you for this, this time in Jesus' name. Amen.